0: Amen. Well, good morning, and uh, it is good to see you in this Advent season, this Christmas season. We want to welcome our guests with us today and extended family members who have traveled some uh, distance to be with us today, so we are glad you're here also. Uh, Dawn sends her greetings. Uh, I asked her this morning, I said, boy, I wish you could come with us, and she said, yes, she wished she could be here too. Uh, One thing about uh, being in church is when you can't be here, over a period of time, you realize how much you miss the body of Christ, and so uh, she sends her greetings, and uh, uh, she is, uh, has strict orders to stay in her recliner, and so that's where she's at, and uh, worshiping with us uh, as we speak. Uh, one of my favorite characters out of uh, church history was a man named Simon Stylitus. He lived about 400 AD. Uh, Simon Styletus read the Gospels when he was 13 years old, and it changed his life. And then at age 16, he joined a monastery. And uh, he was in the monastery for a few short years, and they finally told him he had to leave because he was too strong in his faith. Uh, he would be one who would stand up for days on end praying without eating. He would fast for extreme periods of time. And the other monks could not put up with that. He was just too strong in his faith. And so Simon Stiletus left the monastery and went out on his own. He went out into the desert of what is now Syria, uh, to the ruins of an old Roman Byzantine city there. And there was a column that remained. And he climbed up on top of that column, and he remained on the column. And I like to think he just got tired of people and wanted some peace. And so Simon Stiletus, or Simon of Styletus. Uh, remained on that column for some 37 years. Can you imagine? Uh, you know, there are times in our lives where I just want a little peace in my life. Uh, I think I'll go climb up on a column and live there. And I would last maybe two and a half to three hours, and then I would be done. I would have to come down. But Simon Stylitis, he actually, he lived there until his death. When they found his body, it was in the posture of prayer. And so Simon Styletus is uh, one of... Uh, The the guys I really look at and think of, wow, he was serious about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I also thought about monastic living, and it appeals to some. And sometimes I think it would be nice to be a monk in a monastery. And then I read this story uh, about some monks in a remote monastery who followed a rigid vow of silence. In other words, they couldn't speak at all. Their vow could only be broken once a year, and that was on Christmas Day, and only one monk at a time could speak and say one sentence on Christmas Day. And so uh, if you were a monk there, you might only get to say one sentence in maybe 20 or 30 years. And so it was a very important day if it was your turn to speak. Well, the monk could speak only this one sentence, and so Brother Thomas got up. It was his turn that Christmas to speak, and he said, quote, I love the delightful mashed potatoes and excuse me, the delightful mashed potatoes we have every year and the Christmas roast is very good. Then he sat down and silence ensued for another 365 days. The next Christmas, Brother Michael got his turn and he said, quote, I think the mashed potatoes are lumpy and the roast is greasy, and I truly despise them. Once again, silence ensued. For 365 days. The following Christmas, Brother Paul got up and he said, quote, I'm fed up with this constant bickering. I, I need some peace. <laughs> we can probably identify with all three of the brothers there in this monastery Uh, We can look for peace in many areas, and of course the world offers us supposed peace or a a shadow of peace in much of the things we see around us, and yet many solutions seem very elusive, and we live in a time and a day and age, of course, of 24-7 newscasts where we are constantly bombarded by the problems in the world, the difficulties and the horror that we can see on TV every day, and yet uh, we find that peace is very elusive, So we're coming to the Old Testament in this Advent season and series. Last week, we looked at the seed of promise out of Genesis 3. Remember that uh, uh, Christmas did not begin with Luke 2. It began clear back in Genesis 3 where God promised that there would be a rescuer, a savior, one who would come and bring actual true peace to the world. Uh, we go to the Old, old Testament, and oftentimes we don 't find ourselves here c s Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia said something like this: He said, "A land which is always winter but never Christmas and sometimes we view the Old Testament like that it 's full of these and thou's and all these lists of people and uh, lots of fighting and all sorts of things and but it 'd be a tragic mistake if we ignored god 's record in the Old Testament up through the New Testament that Jesus himself had a high view of Scripture. I didn't mention this last week, but as we translate, as we interpret, excuse me, as we interpret, especially Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Jesus had a high view of that. He had a very high view of the Old Testament, as did the other apostles, the other writers of Scripture. Jesus said in Luke 24, remember after his resurrection, his appearance to many, he appeared to these two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus said to them, as they were discussing all the events, you know, this crucifixion, this death, this burial, and now the tomb was empty, and Jesus uh, walked with them, and they didn't even know it was him. And he said, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Right away, he's referring back to the Old Testament prophets. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then it tells us here in Luke 24 that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. The apostle Paul believed in the purpose of Jesus coming into the world had its roots in the story of the covenants with Abraham, those unconditional covenants that God made with Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, he tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. When we come to Genesis 22, and we see here there is a son of promise in this passage. A son of promise. In the Scriptures, there is a technical device called a type. A type is a foreshadowing or a foretelling of something coming that is more important. And here we have this account of Abraham and his son Isaac going up on Mount Moriah where God has commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son. And Abraham is in obedience following this, but it serves as a type of what's going to happen in dec- or generations to come when the Messiah comes, the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate his first advent here at Christmas, but yet the purpose of that was his death, burial, and resurrection, that he would bring the salvation that was promised back in Genesis chapter 3, that this victory over sin and death. And so this passage in Genesis chapter 22 provides us with four signals or four identities that we can look upon that fulfills, or it's not fulfills, Christ is the fulfillment, but it foreshadows, it looks forward to this coming Christ, this one, this Messiah that was promised. These four things uh, we see here is the picture of the Father and the Son. And likewise, when we look at the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we see all three were involved in creation. We see that the the single one God with three persons is involved in our salvation. And this is a type. It is probably the most powerful type found in Scripture of the coming Messiah. And Jesus said to the Jews in John 8, "'Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad.'" What did he mean with that? He's going back here to Genesis chapter 22, to Mount Moriah, to the events that are described for us here. And we see here that Isaac was a type of Christ. He was one who foreshadowed the coming, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. In Isaac's miraculous birth, remember that Abraham and Sarah were 99 years old before she gave birth to Isaac. This was the promised son. They were childless before this. And Abraham saw the day of Christ's birth and the birth of Isaac, which was miraculous. And in later on in Genesis 24, when Isaac gets married, he sees the day of Christ coming for his bride. But on Mount Moriah, when Isaac willingly put himself On this altar, Abraham saw the day of Christ's death and resurrection. And we see several truths about the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ in this event. First of all, just notice that the father and the son were acting together. Uh, He was not dragging Isaac up the mountain. We see here in verse 1, it came about after these days that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. <clears throat> the name abraham remember his his given name was abram back in genesis chapter 17 verse 5 and abram means exalted father exalted father and jesus changed his name excuse me in genesis 17:25 to abraham which means father of a multitude Now, can you imagine that Abraham is called, first of all, this exalted father and then father of a multitude, and yet he has no children? He would be the laughingstock of those who knew him because he didn't have any children. In fact, Sarah tried to uh, supplant God's plan for them by bringing forth Hagar, her servant, whom Abraham had a child with named Ishmael. And Ishmael is gone. He had Ishmael. They had Ishmael when he was about 86 years old. And surely some laughed at Abraham because he was not, from their viewpoint, a father of a multitude. And in Genesis 17, God told Abraham, neither shall thy name be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. It's a walk by faith. This passage in Genesis 22 is about faith in what God is doing in the face of where everything looks impossible, where everything doesn't make sense, that God is still at work, and that's the lesson for us. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and he counted it as righteousness in Genesis chapter 15. We look back at Abraham. He existed before the Mosaic Law was given. Uh, The Jewish nation was just being established through him. But yet, his faith in the God is what declared him righteous. Romans repeats that very strongly. And that's how salvation worked then. It was by faith through grace. And that's how it works now. You hear the promise of God, you believe what God says, and you accept him by faith, and that's what saves your soul and spirit for all of eternity. Uh, Notice that the Lord speaks. Abraham's nature comes through. Abraham responds, here am I. Uh, It's like he's available. He's always available. Uh, After these thousands of years, Abraham is still viewed as a great saint of God, not only by Christians, but by Jewish people and by Muslims even. He is called by name 284 times in our Bibles. Why is that? Because he believed God. And that's the challenge to you and I, is do we believe God in the midst of the impossible, in the midst of things that don't make any sense? Are we believing and trusting that God has a plan for this life that we live? Notice in verses 6 and 8 here, it tells us twice that they walked on together, that the Father and the Son were joint in this process. And that is a picture of what God the Father and God the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit, did at the cross of Calvary. Both of them went together. There's no rebellion detected in Isaac. Amos the prophet let us know that men cannot walk together unless they are agreed in Amos chapter 3. Even though Isaac doesn't understand what's happening to him here, he still follows his father and they arrive at the, the place of sacrifice on Mount Moriah there. And Mount Moriah, by the way, is Jerusalem. It is what we call Mount Zion or Jerusalem. It's some 50 miles from Beersheba. That's why it takes them three days to get there. And then they're going up to worship again. Uh, Jesus Christ was not forced to go to the cross to die this horrible death. He willingly gave himself up on the cross, even when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. He prayed that the Father would allow him to live long enough. To die and to go to Calvary to die for sin. This is the one who died for you and I, is Jesus Christ. Isaac foreshadows that. The son had to die in verses 2 through 10. This cost is beyond calculation. Imagine if you're Abraham. This is the promised son that you've been given. Uh, You're probably, uh, you know, this is the, the, the jewel of your eye. This is the one that you know God has promised to make a multitude, a nation out of, And yet, uh, the cost is beyond calculation. Notice that God tells Abraham, your son, your only son, the son that you love more than life and self, offer him as this burnt offering. And notice that Abraham says we're going up to worship. Uh, That is an interesting statement because we often think of worship what we do here on Sunday mornings for an hour. And yet, Abraham is worshiping and there's sacrifice involved. When I think of the New Testament saints of the church, and we are to offer a sacrifice of praise, why is a praise called a sacrifice? It seems sometimes like not much, and yet in our human condition, in our flesh, we don't want to praise anything but ourselves. And so it is a sacrifice to recognize there is one larger than us, bigger than us. There is a movement that is bigger than us, and God himself is that movement notice the similarities between Isaac and the Lord Jesus Christ where God tells him to take your son that's a reflection or an echo out of Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 unto us a son is given the prophet wrote there your only son God told Abraham remember John 3:16 God uh, gave us his only begotten son so you see the parallel and then he says whom thou lovest in Matthew 17:5 this is my beloved son The Lord looks at the plight of humanity, and there is an answer. He knew right away, before the beginning of time, that this would be the plan. That always staggers me when I think about it, is that God being all-knowing, he knows all things, he knows all possibilities, before the beginning of time, before creation, as as he existed in eternity past, he knew all possible plans. And he knew that this plan that we live in is the best possible plan. Now, from our viewpoint, we think, wow, what a mess the world is in. What a mess my life is in. What are we going to do? And yet God knows that this is the best plan throughout all the ages. And he's carrying it out, and he will bring it to completion. And so he knew this. Abraham never wavered. Wavered. Abraham was very compliant to what God wanted. He had a sensitivity to God. He gathered everything he needed for this worship service, if you will, for this sacrifice. And he headed to the place God told him to go. And his heart was fixed on doing what God wanted him to do. When all the world goes and flees from us, what has God called you to do? Are you following him with a heart full of what God wants you to do? And he arrived at that place. God spoke to Abraham here about that place. He speaks to us through his word, of course, through the leading and guiding of his Holy Spirit, applying his word to our lives. God knows all things. God knew that on that very spot, which is now Jerusalem, on that very spot, that centuries later, Mount Moriah would become known as Mount Zion, Mount Calvary. And uh, he knew that his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would die on the cross there to bring salvation, would take the sins of the world upon himself and die there. He knew that he still created that place and he gave it a name and he fixed it for you and I, that Jesus Christ would provide salvation there. There was great confidence uh, by Abraham here when they arrived at the place, Abraham instructed his servants to wait while he and Isaac went up to worship and, uh, There's a question about that. Will God keep his word? Will God keep his word? Abraham, can you imagine the emotional turmoil as he's been commanded? And he's taking his young son. Isaac is probably maybe 15, maybe a little bit older, as uh, Abraham, by now 115 years old, is taking him, and they're traveling together up Mount Moriah. In Hebrews 11, we see that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it is said, "In Isaac, your descendants will be called." He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which also he received him back as a type. That's Ephesians 11, or excuse me, Hebrews eleven nineteen. And so Abraham knew that even if Isaac were to die on that altar and be burned to pieces that God would restore him because God had already promised that in Isaac your descendants will be. He knew that this nation was going to come through Isaac. Eventually, the Messiah would come through this line. And he took the instruments of death, the knife and the torch, both these instruments of death that would end Isaac's physical life. The fire would burn on the wood on the altar, and uh, Isaac would be there. And this is a type of what Christ is going to do. And Christ is the fulfillment. Jesus Christ did die on the cross of Calvary. And Isaac asked this question, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And uh, behold, the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, John the baptizer said in John chapter 1. In the Bible, fire often symbolizes the holiness of God. And so we think here that the cross was the physical instrument of death Jesus experienced much more than death. If we read the account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that is a deep portion of Scripture that we can only get a glimpse of. As God turns his back, God the Father, on God the Son, who has the weight of the world's sin upon him, and John R.W. Stott, who is a late British pastor and theologian, wrote that I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how can worship, how can one worship a God who is immune to it? I turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hand and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from the thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He set aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world to flesh, blood, tears, and death, unquote. John R. W. Stott. Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac shows that deliverance from the curse will have to involve sacrifice and death. This is the signal or the picture of Jesus' eventual, redemptive act on the cross of Calvary. And the son bore the burden of sin. We see the word wood. The wood is mentioned here for the altar some five times in this passage, and it says that Abraham laid the wood upon Isaac, and Isaac bore it up the mountain for his own sacrifice. He bore the burden. It's representative of the burden of sin. The wood seems to picture that burden of sin that Jesus bore for us in 1 Peter chapter 2. He laid it upon his, on Isaac, his son. The Lord laid upon Jesus the iniquity of his all, Isaiah 53, 6. The fire consumed the wood as a picture of God's judgment, his holy judgment against sin. God did not spare his own son from this flaming torch as the unmitigated wrath of God came down upon him at the cross of Calvary. Paul writes in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things in him? The son was raised from the dead. The whole purpose, notice that this ram was caught in the thicket. Uh, Isaac was asking, where is the lamb? Where is the sacrifice? And Abraham knew it's you, Isaac. And yet he turned around and here is this ram caught in the thicket. And it's a substitute is what it is. It took the place of Isaac, and it's a picture of Christ taking your place and my place under the wrath of God in payment for our sins. It arrived at the right place at the right time for the right purpose, and it took Isaac's place. This ram pictures this wonderful portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every sinner, every one of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is doomed to hell and damnation. That's just a fact of what Scripture talks about. We talked about that last week, about uh, that very thing. All sinners are headed for hell, except for the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ became our substitute. Our righteousness is called imputed righteousness. In other words, we are not righteous in and of ourselves, but only the Lord Jesus Christ, His righteousness, is given to us when we trust in Him. Imagine being Isaac that day. And recognizing as you're bound on the altar on that wood, and your father raises the knife, and then there's this ram that suddenly is seen, and your father unties you and lets you free, and then he puts this ram on there and and slices its throat, and the blood is shed, and there is the sacrifice. He is the substitute. Imagine what Isaac thought about that. From where we stand today, can we see the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has done for us? We're giving wonderful pictures like this in Scripture of what he's done for us. Notice in verse 14, the last part of verse 14, after Abraham talks about the Lord providing Jehovah-Jireh, he said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. In the mount of the Lord it will be seen, some translations have. That is a prophetic statement because many centuries later, Jesus Christ died on this same mountaintop. He wasn't just dying for Isaac, he was dying for you and for me and for all men, and providing us with salvation if we receive it and accept him as our Savior. He is the Lamb of Calvary. He is the one who God provided. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah died figuratively, but Jesus Christ died literally. But he rose again. Abraham had faith in God's provision. It is interesting after this passage that Abraham returns with his two servants to Beersheba here in, later in this chapter. But nothing is said about Isaac, although it's implied, of course, that Isaac is still living and he goes with his father, but he's not mentioned. And it's obvious that he returned home with his father. But the, this Bible type reminds us that the next event in God's calendar is the return of Jesus Christ to claim his bride, because we don't see Isaac again until chapter 24 where he does find a bride. And so it is a prophetic picture of what God is going to do next. Calvary is, uh, not only, uh, is not only the place where Christ died for our sins, but the place where he sanctified our suffering. We sometimes think that our suffering and adversity is all a waste. And from our viewpoint, some of it, most of it is. But Jesus Christ transformed the suffering and the glory And we seek his glory, he will do the rest. Martin Luther said, Our suffering is not worthy of the name of suffering. When I consider my crosses, my tribulations, my temptations, I shame myself almost to death, thinking that what they are in comparison to the sufferings of my blessed Savior, Christ Jesus. So Abraham's almost sacrifice of Isaac serves as a type for this babe in the manger who would be sacrificed would be our substitute on the cross of Calvary. During the 2008 presidential election, Senator John McCain, of course, was running at that time. Time Magazine interviewed John McCain and asked him about his personal journey of faith. And in that story, McCain shared a powerful story of something that occurred when he was a prisoner of war in North Vietnam. And he writes, when I was a prisoner of war in Vietnam, my Captors would tie my arms behind my back and then loop the rope around my neck and ankle so that my head was pulled down between my knees. I was often left like that throughout the night. One night, a guard came into my cell. He put his finger to his lips, signaling for me to be quiet, and then he loosened my ropes to relieve my pain. The next morning, when his shift ended, the guard returned and retightened the ropes, never saying a word to me. A month or so later on Christmas Day, I was standing in the dirt courtyard when I saw that same guard approach me. He walked up and stood silently next to me, not looking or smiling at me. He then used his foot, his sandaled foot, to draw a cross in the dirt. We stood wordlessly before that cross, looking at it, remembering the true light of Christmas, even in the darkness of a Vietnamese prison camp. Genesis 3, we have hope. Genesis 22, we can have peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the major question for you and for I, for each of us as individuals, is what are we going to do with Jesus? Uh, He seems kind of harmless and safe as that babe in the manger. Yet Jesus Christ comes before us as the substitute, the sacrifice for your sins and my sins. Are we worshiping him together, that sacrifice of worship? He died on the cross to set us free. That high price, the Father and the Son together before the beginning of time determined it. When we look at eternity, I'm uh, well aware that life goes by very quick. I'm at the age now where I start marking things in decades rather than years. And it seems like a decade has gone by so quickly. And so when I reach the end of my life, when you reach the end of this physical life on this earth, uh, what are you accounting on? Are you counting on Jesus Christ when that day comes? Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ said, if you believe in me, uh, it's the only way through the Father. It's the only way for eternal life. You can worship and go back down the mountain alive and free because of Christ who took your place. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for this account of Abraham.